Well, let us turn in God's Word this evening to a very familiar passage, but uh, we may be dealing with it in a somewhat less than familiar way. And the passage for our reading tonight is Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Luke 23, 32 through 43. Let us hear God's Word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, that is, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Lord bless this reading of his word. Our dear Heavenly Father, it is good that we are here tonight in your house to offer our praises to you, to hear your word spoken to us, to hear what it will be like, and at least as far as we can tell from your word, what paradise will be. We thank you for the fact that your son came to this earth to die on the cross, to give us the opportunity to be able to see paradise and to be with you. Lord, we pray that you will give Pastor Tim the words, the clarity of mind, and the heart to prepare for us the words that you want him to tell us, and prepare our hearts that they may be receptive to what is said. We just ask these things, not because we're worthy, but we ask them in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, we come this evening to the subject of paradise explained using Luke 23, verse 43, as a way in which we might open up um, what is a glorious theme in Scripture, and yet a theme that is rarely mentioned in terms of the actual word paradise. The famous 
British writer or poet, John Milton, who lived between 1608 and 1674, as some of you may well know, wrote two famous poems. One was called Paradise Lost, which was the longer of the poems. And having written that poem, he was approached by a Quaker who challenged him to write a poem about paradise regained, at which point he brought out the poem as if to say he'd already written it, a shorter poem, but one nevertheless. And yet there is a sense in which, under one sermon titled Paradise Explained, we want to bring together these two bookends of the history of salvation, Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. But as we think about John Milton, who was probably the most famous British writer, second only to William Shakespeare, we are reminded, and we surely ought to pray for this in our own day, of how public writers in the 17th century knew the Scriptures and could draw upon the Scriptures in order to feed their writing. And we also note, as we reflect upon this theme of paradise, when we ourselves come to the Bible, to be careful about the way in which we read the Bible. Because we are into facts and figures, and we tend to determine the importance of a subject by how many times it is mentioned. And yet, in a sense, the Bible is counterintuitive. Sometimes the more important a theme is, the less it is actually spoken about. And there's a reason for that, which has to do with the literary makeup of the Bible. Because the more you use a term, the less value it has. And so, when we come to this term paradise, we find that it's actually mentioned in the New Testament just three occasions. The first of which is here in Luke 23. The second of which is in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 4. And the third of which is in Revelation 2 verse 7. We'll have cause to refer to each of these terms, but majoring upon the first tonight. And when we think of these terms and the way in which they are used, we find that this term paradise is one strand of teaching, biblical teaching, whereby we can unfold the whole history of salvation. And so my appeal to us tonight as we think about not only the importance of reading the Bible and knowing the Bible as John Milton did, but in understanding how to interpret the Bible, that it is important principle that we don't simply go to a concordance and calculate how many times a term occurs in the Bible. To determine how important a theme is in the Bible, you not only have to look at the number of times, and sometimes the less makes it more important, but the way in which the term is used. And that is one of the striking features of this term paradise, that when we look at the way in which it is used, twice by Jesus, once by the Apostle Paul, they use it to unpack, to unveil the grand scope of what God has been doing in the history of salvation. And so we come tonight to this first use of the term paradise, and it's found in this most beloved saying 
of Jesus from the cross, which is actually the second saying that Jesus uttered as he was hanging upon the tree. And by means of it, we attempt then to unpack the entire history of redemption or salvation very quickly tonight. And so the first point that I want us to note is the first paradise. You see, when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We are not to be thinking that as Jesus is hanging upon the cross and this conversation unfolds between the thief and Jesus, that Jesus in his dying moments plucks out of thin air this term paradise. And he starts speaking to the thief to give him some solace, some comfort in his dying moments. Well, surely he's doing that. But he's not plucking the term out of thin air. And so as we think of the first paradise then, we notice the origin of the term first of all. It's not actually a Hebrew term. It's not actually an Aramaic term originally. It was a Persian term. It was a term that came into being amongst the Persian kings and their nobilities, and it has the meaning of park. In the Persian, the word is pyri diaza, and it was used there to speak of the great parks there in the land of Persia, or what we now call Iran. And it was found originally in the book of Zoroaster, a so-called Persian prophet who lived between 628 B.C., and 551 BC. And there it remained in Persia for so long as we know until the end of what is called the prehistoric era of Persian development, about a thousand years BC. Now that is significant because that was around the time in which David and Solomon were reigning in the golden era of Israel. And so you find that the term comes into Hebrew pardes now, and was probably brought into the Hebrew through Persian traders who came into the land of Israel. And so you find that the Hebrew equivalent is found, for instance, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 5. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And then the second Hebrew reference, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 13. Your shoots are an orchard or a preserve or a park of pomegranates with all choicest of fruits. And then much later in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 8. You remember how Nehemiah was burdened for what was going on in the promised land. And so he goes to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, and he requests to go back to the promised land. And he requests from Artaxerxes a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests. Same word. And why is he wanting that letter? So that from Asaph, he might receive the timbers from which he can help with the destruction of the wall in Jerusalem. So what is significant about that is the way in which God is not limited by the language that is used to convey biblical truth. And so this, here's this term that was found in Persia. 
used by pagan kings, pagan nobility, that in the providence of God comes into the Hebrew language, which begins to explain things that are included in inscripturated revelation of the Bible. So that's the origin of the term. And we're dealing there with what we call the principle of divine accommodation. That God, in order to communicate truth to us, he can accommodate himself to human sin on the one hand, without excusing it, and he can accommodate himself on the other hand to the finitude of human minds so that we receive the truth that he wants to communicate even though that word, that term, came from a pagan land. You find the Apostle Paul doing a similar thing in Acts 17 where he draws upon the poets and where there is a point of contact between what they are writing of and the truth of God, he utilizes these uh, poets in order to communicate the gospel to the intelligentsia in Athens. And I do believe it's a reminder to us today not to be so narrow-minded about the sources we use in order to communicate the gospel. We have seen in our Sunday school in Acts of the Apostles that um, when the apostles are speaking to those who have the Bible, they use the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. But when they are dealing with those who are without the Bible, they have no qualms about drawing upon those known to their audience but unknown of in the Bible through whom they can communicate the gospel. And so you find Jesus here on the cross using a term that wasn't Hebrew in its origin but was Persian. And so we come on then secondly under this main heading, the first paradise, to the use of the term. Because the term not only came from Persian into Hebrew, but by several centuries before the coming of Christ, it also came into Greek, paradisos. And it is that term then which is used to speak of parks and gardens, not now in a secular sense, but in regard to sacred history. So the term morphed from a secular use in Persian and Hebrew culture into a spiritual use through biblical Greek. And so when they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, the translation moves from the general park to that of garden. And so paradisos in Greek is used to translate Genesis 2.15, the Garden of Eden, also Genesis 3.23. It's used in Genesis 13, 10. You remember there was the uh, division, the great conflict between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham. And Abraham took the high road. Lot thought of himself more. We read in Genesis 13, 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden, the paradisos of the Lord. And then you come into Isaiah 51, verse 3, as we read for our call to worship tonight. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden, the paradisos of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. It's also found in Ezekiel 28, 13. To the king of Tyre, 
Commentators go back and forth as to whether Satan is who is primarily involved. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and the carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. We get this glimpse of the beauty, the splendor of the garden of God. And then to Pharaoh, just a few chapters later, chapter 31, verses 7 to 9, the garden of God is again described, this time in terms of a plenitude of cedars and of fir trees. So Eden, we learn from the transmission of this term from Persian to Hebrew to Greek, was full of physical beauty. The first paradise was seismic. It was luscious. It was peaceful, it was fruitful, with precious stones forested, prepared for man as a foretaste of heaven. You see, our first parents, they had it so good. They had it so good. And God had prepared for them this great park, more specifically this garden, for them to dwell in as a foretaste of heaven to come, which would have been fixed and made permanent and even further glorified had they kept the word of the Lord, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we come to the adjustment of the term. We know very well that our first parents fell. Paradise was destroyed. Our first parents were condemned, driven from Eden, barred from contact with the tree of life. And through the first sin, the beauty, perfection, communion with God gave way to ugliness, destruction, and death. Yes, we still see vestiges of this original beauty in some of the great panoramas that we see in our day and see around the world. But the loss of the first paradise was seen most clearly at the cross. How? Well, communion with God has given way to talk about condemnation by God. Holiness in Eden has given way to a swirling of hatred around the cross. And tranquility has been replaced by trauma. This man, the thief on the cross, is dying a traumatic death. And Jesus is dying a traumatic death with him. And yet it is amid the disarray, Jesus reveals that God in his grace, has been preparing for penitent sinners a better, meaning an inviolable paradise. And although currently it is hidden to our eyes, veiled in a different dimension, it is promised to all who believe. That's the context, the first paradise. But then we come on secondly to the hidden paradise, and many questions come to mind. Maybe you came back tonight thinking, Maybe he's got some answers I don't have. And I'm coming to you and saying, as uh, Brother Nate said in his prayer tonight, that I can only go so far as Revelation gives us to go. John Calvin said, we leave off teaching, learning where God leaves off teaching. And the same is true for paradise. So here are some of the questions we don't necessarily have an answer to. The first is, when did paradise come into existence? Has God always lived in this park, this walled garden, in utter splendor, material, tangible splendor? 
Or is it an aspect of heaven being brought into existence by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not sure we have an answer to that. We know that God has always dwelt in his own glory. But has his glory always looked like a paradise, as is revealed through the use of this term, paradisos? And the second question, I won't weigh you down with all the questions, but the second question, the one which has um, played on my mind, is this. The hidden paradise is real. Jesus speaks of it as real. There's no doubt about that. So I don't want anybody to misunderstand me that I'm saying paradise is not real. It is real. But when Jesus uses the term paradise, is he speaking about something literally or metaphorically? If literally, Paul seems to refer to it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 to 4. You remember when he is taken up to the third heaven. And there he writes to us in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. So the first heaven of the clouds, the second heaven, the stars and the planets, the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. He certainly seems to speak of paradise as literal, having entered into paradise. But if it is literal, we then have the problem of picturing this seismic, luscious park, bedecked by wonderful stones, full of cedars and fir trees, but filled with disembodied spirits currently. And it doesn't seem to gel together. So some have said, although this isn't an issue which has been investigated much, that when Jesus speaks of the word paradise, he's using it metaphorically in terms of the current hidden paradise to speak of that tranquility, that joy and gladness, that sense of the beauty of God and of his splendor, that those who have passed in Christ from this scene now know as they await for the final paradise to come, and the redemption of their bodies in which the final paradise becomes visible, becomes tangible, as was the first paradise. It's interesting when we reflect upon what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about what he heard. He doesn't talk about what he saw. And he says, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. I entered into paradise and I heard things which it is not possible or legitimate for me to communicate to you. We might think that if it's a literal paradise that brothers and sisters that we have known are currently inhabiting, that he would not only say what I heard but what I saw. But he doesn't say that. So there is something of a mystery here that the Bible doesn't solve for us. And of course, when we think about what Jesus is saying here, 
Jesus is speaking as a dying individual. And he's speaking to the thief who is also dying. And if you think about those uh, deathbed scenes that you've been to, and you, you grasp hold of every single word that your loved one is saying, and after they've passed, you say, I, I wish I knew what they were saying. If they'd only unpacked it more, but they're dying. So they just give you the, the short notes. I remember when my grandfather died on Christmas Day in 1981, and uh, my mother had the idea that um, as he was fading away, he started giving all these pieces of advice to different members of the church family, and so they got hold of the old cassette recorder, and they began to record what he was saying, just little snippets, a line here, line here, and after he died, my mother wrote out what he'd said, and she went around the church, and she said, this was my father's dying words to you. And you look at the dying words and you think, wow, that he was thinking of me as he died. But oh, I wish that he could have unpacked that brief sentence, made it into a paragraph, and told me what he really thought and what he really wanted of me. And I think there's something of that here as Jesus is dying upon the cross. He says, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't stop and say, listen, we're both here in excruciating pain, but let me tell you about paradise. Let me, let me give you a discourse on what I know about paradise. That's not the aim. And so we have this tantalizing revelation of paradise where we know that it's something to do with the peace and the splendor and the glory of a park, a garden. And all these descriptive passages in Scripture speaking of the reality of paradise. But so far as the hidden paradise is concerned, we are left with so many questions to answer. Now, why is that the case? Well, it's because Jesus has four most important things, facts, that he wants us to know. Jesus gives this thief in his dying moments what he needs to know, not necessarily what he wants to know. And the same is true for us because there will never become an instance when we as the people of God begin to walk by sight rather than by faith. Well, what are the four facts? First of all, there's no hidden paradise without atonement. Clearly, this converted thief knows it, verses 39 to 41. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, this thief is going through the trauma of dying by crucifixion, but the greatest trauma for him is that he is facing, in his final moments, the condemnation of God, and he has no answer to it. And so Jesus comes to him and says, well, he doesn't come to him, he speaks to him, and he says, listen, as you come to faith in the work of atonement that I am in the very process of accomplishing, here's your comfort. Today you will be with me in paradise. It's going to be such a short time before you enter paradise, you don't even need to know all the wherewithal. 
And Jesus knows that there's no hidden paradise without the atonement. Remember, going back to the turning point of Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and here he is, hanging upon the cross. And verses 44 to 45 go on to tell us what is happening. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So as the Heidelberg Catechism rightly says, Jesus doesn't go to hell from the cross. He's going to hell, going through hell while he's on the cross. And it is because he goes through what the Heidelberg Catechism calls the torments of hell that the veil of the temple is rent from the top to the bottom and now we have access to God. That's the point that the thief needs to know. That the only people who enter the hidden paradise are those who are leaning their entire weight upon the atonement of Jesus Christ. But of course, that atonement happened 2,000 years ago. And so we want to say, secondly, with regard to the hidden paradise, that there is no hidden paradise for us without conversion. And John Calvin makes this point. He says, what happened 2,000 years ago is great and it's grand. But the point of importance for us personally is that what Jesus did 2,000 years ago has been applied to me personally by the Holy Spirit. So that when I come to die and when you come to die, we don't simply want to know, oh, that's great, Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago. What we'll want to know is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for me. When we face the thought of standing before this God, recognizing that if we are outside of Christ, it's condemnation. If we are in Christ, it's paradise. We want to know that we are converted people. Let me speak to you, if I may, about something which really troubles pastors in West Michigan. And it's this idea, taught sadly in some of our Reformed churches, of presumptive regeneration. And I cannot think of something more damaging to the church in West Michigan than presumptive regeneration. What does presumptive regeneration mean? Well, it's a less, less radical view than the Catholics have a baptismal regeneration. And it goes like this. Well, you see, I'm born in a Reformed church. I'm baptized as an infant. I'm taught of all the privileges of being a covenant child. I go off to catechism class or youth. And it is just assumed that because I'm born and brought up in the church that, hey, presto, I am a converted person. Now, it is very much the case that many of you may not be able to recall a time and a date at which you were converted. That's not the point. I can, but it's not the point. The point is not that we are able to write on a piece of paper, I was converted on such and such a day, such and such a time, such and such a place. What is important is the state of convertedness. So that whether we can remember or whether we cannot remember, the point at which we were converted, 
we know that we are converted because repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is the proof that we have been born again of the Spirit of God. And so the church in West Michigan has been greatly weakened by people who have come to believe that because they were born and brought up, yes, in a Reformed church, and yes, went to youth group, yes, learned the catechism, that they are born again of the Spirit of God. But unless we are repentant as this thief was, unless we are believing as this thief was, we have no right to believe that we have been born again of the Spirit of God. It's churchianity, it's not Christianity. And there will not be revival in West Michigan until we challenge head-on this erroneous belief. Listen to the thief. His repentance. I'm under condemnation. I'm just about to go out and make my maker, meet my maker. And when I look at my track record that's got me to the crucifixion, I don't stand a hope. And then he's aware by the working of God that in the middle of these crosses is this entirely different figure. Notice this beautiful statement of faith. It's not articulate. Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. What is he doing? He's hanging upon a cross. He's looking sideways. He can't do any good works. All he can do is look to the Savior. And it's as he looks to the Savior, having repented toward God of being justly under this condemnation, that Jesus recognizes he's come through to be his disciple. And so I want to say to us this evening, this is why I'm a big advocate of preaching the gospel in the church first and foremost. Because unless we are repentant toward God, unless we are looking solely to Jesus Christ for our salvation, there's no paradise for us. Thirdly, there is no hidden paradise for us without death. You say, well, if this thief upon the cross has come through to salvation, why does he still have to die? Well, first of all, because he's crucified. He didn't get away with out dying, being crucified. Christ dies to pay the wages of our sin. The thief now converted must die. He dies physically because he's crucified. He dies spiritually because in the very process of dying, the Lord's people are weaned from their sins and are granted entrance into this hidden paradise, eternal life. That's the answer of Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 42. And so what an astounding belief Jesus has in the grace and power of his atonement. He says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And notice what he says. He doesn't say, now listen, you've got a great hope of getting into paradise. But the thing is, when you die, you've got to go through a process of purgatory. And your remaining sins have to be purged away from you so you can eventually get into heaven. You know why the doctrine of purgatory is taught? It is taught because they don't believe in a full and a free atonement for sin. And so the whole idea of purgatory then 
is to cleanse us because the work of Christ upon the cross doesn't complete the cleansing. Not so the text here. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And then fourthly about the hidden paradise. There is no hidden paradise without Christ. You see, whether we take this paradise as literal or metaphorical, it's real. But whether we take it as literal or metaphorical, the point is this. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He's saying, in other words, that while paradise is this sphere, which is this dimension, which is full of the glory of God, which is full of the tranquility of God's people, in which there are no afflictions, in which there's no sin, in which there's no separation from God or from one another amongst those who are there. He says, paradise is not paradise without me. You see, this is what is erroneous about the Islamic teaching, that you can put on a terrorist vest and you can walk into a marketplace, press a button, because you're under the erroneous belief that once my limbs have been shattered to smithereens, I am with 70 virgins in the afterlife. That's the Muslim version. And then you have the secular version. There's a book published a number of years ago by Mitch Albom, the five people you meet in heaven. But there's no Christ there. And if there's any sense of God at all, he's at the far end of the experience of heaven because it's all about the people we've met here and understanding the experiences we've been through. But Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And the amazing thing about that is this, as you know from the record of the crucifixion, that Jesus was the first one that day that went to paradise. And when the Roman soldiers came around, they saw that Jesus had already died, so they didn't break his legs. But when it came to this thief, he was still alive. So they break his legs to hasten his death. And so when he passes over, from the moment he's in paradise, there is our Lord, ready to greet him. Disembodied spirits, though they were. Paradise is unimportant as an independent entity. Note how Paul later spoke of the intermediate heaven with which we're dealing with tonight solely in terms of Christ's presence. He says, I'm struggling. Is it better for me to remain here or to die, which is far better? To die and be with Christ, which is far better. Philippians 1, 23. He talks in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, about being home with the Lord. The hidden paradise. So that brings us on thirdly then to the final paradise. One day this hidden paradise is going to become the visible, tangible, fulfilled paradise, which is the ultimate vision of the New Testament. And while Jesus does not mention this to the thief explicitly, since he aims at his immediate comfort, the final paradise is implicit here in verse 43 in the surrounding verses. Note three hints of it, the fullness of First of all, of Christ's atonement. Christ was hanging upon the cross for sinners, not simply for souls. Souls without their bodies. For whole persons, body and soul. So while not every illness in this life is healed, we affirm that when Christ died upon the cross, he did die for physical healing as well as spiritual healing. 
And so we go to such texts as Isaiah 53, the servant's song, verses 4 to 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. Malachi 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Matthew 8, 16 to 17. Jesus healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. But you see, this is where the debate is. And I remember this from eight years being on the Ask the Pastor program. The question comes in. Is it God's will for us to be healed? And one after another of the pastors says, yes, it's God's will to be healed. Well, why do Christians die? Well, you see, they don't have enough faith. So it comes to my turn, and I'm saying, well, excuse me, I'm puzzled by this. I'm puzzled by it, first of all, because I've known some very godly people who are full of faith, who are not healed, and did not believe it was God's will to heal them. Secondly, I'm puzzled by this because the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 about the redemption of the body. So what you are trying to do then is bring this healing from the future, the day of the Lord, into the present. Yes, we believe that Christ died for physical healing as well as spiritual healing, but we are not guaranteed that healing in this life. And I'm also perplexed by how you hold your funerals. Do you just get out the same old sermon and say, Well, we know this person died of cancer. We know this person died falling off a ladder. We know this person died of COVID. But you see, they all died for lack of faith. Just get out the same old sermon. Change the name. Change the circumstances. They all died for lack of faith. Now, what we want to say is this. Yes, such is the fullness of Christ's atonement. That there is physical healing as well as spiritual healing through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the wonderful thing is this. That while we might not all get our wishes in this life to be healed of our diseases, we are guaranteed in the final paradise that the fullness of the atonement will come to fruition in my life and yours at the resurrection of the body, the redemption of the body. Because God, brother and sister, is interested not only in your soul, but in your body. And you look in the mirror, and you see the age passing by. I'm 55 today. And you think, where did the years go? Where did the years go? And you look back at photographs from your youth, and you say, I don't recognize myself. Are we then to say, well, don't worry about your body. Christ has got your soul. Brother and sister, Christ has our bodies too. And in the final paradise, it will be seen. Secondly, about the final paradise, the fullness of Christ's measure. You see, the hidden paradise is not the climax of New Testament interest. Those in the hidden paradise know that the final paradise is to come. Well, how do we know that they know? Well, because they were taught it in this life. How do we know that they know? Because they yearn for it in the hereafter, says one writer. It is quite possible that the dead in Christ more clearly see the paradise at history's conclusion than do earthbound believers. In other words, irrespective of whether the paradise is literal or metaphorical, it's real. And if it's metaphorical, then they are looking forward to the paradise at the end of the age when this 
earth and this heaven will be renewed in a new heaven and a new earth. And if it is literal, and they are wandering around this park in disembodied spirits, however that works, they are doing so in the consciousness that God's will for them is that on the day of Jesus Christ, they will be reunited with their bodies, only then resurrected. Time is going, but you can look in the back of the hymnal at Westminster Larger Catechism, question 86. What are the dead doing? They are waiting for the redemption of their bodies, and currently their bodies lie in their graves as in their beds, waiting for the redemption of their bodies at the final paradise. And when the final paradise comes, it will be a return to Eden, only it will be a cosmic Eden, not a local Eden. It will be felt in our bodies as well as in our souls. The final paradise will no longer be hidden or solely spiritual. It will be material, bodily, and tangible. And so thirdly, with regard to the final paradise, the fullness of Christ's promise. This isn't the last time that Christ speaks of paradise. If you turn over to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, as Jesus concludes his letter to the church at Ephesus, you see they've lost their first love. And he calls them to repent and he says, what you need is not some loveless orthodoxy, which is not actually orthodoxy. What you need is to come back to your first love. And as you come back to your first love and you persevere in the faith, this is my promise to you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So whether or not the hidden paradise currently is literal or metaphorical, what we do know is that the final paradise, when this earth has all taints of sin and separation and all the ugliness, death and destruction extracted from it. What our first parents enjoyed in the first Eden, we will enjoy in a cosmic Eden. Only a better version of Eden. There will be no curse. There will be no probation. Christ has finished the work of atonement. God is not going to give us this command. Now, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be put out of Eden once more. That's done. Christ has saved us to the uttermost, such that by the final paradise we will never sin again. And there will be no limitation. And you can read of this. I invite you to read more of this in Romans 8, verses 18 forward. It's a glorious passage. And so as we close tonight, I just have two questions. Are you looking to Christ? I'm not asking you, Are you in church? I know you're in church. Are you looking to Christ? It doesn't matter whether you have a date and a time and a place at which you are converted. Do you have that sense of convertedness? Whereby you say, 
before God and in testimony before others, I know that apart from the grace of God, I would be justly under the condemnation of God. And that would be my lot if I died outside of Christ. But by the work of the Spirit in my life, I came, maybe not instantaneously, maybe over a period, I came to turn from my sins and turn to God. And the more I was conscious of my sins, the more I saw the need, was led to the need, compelled to the need to look at Christ because I was as strapped as that thief on the cross. I could do not a single good work that could earn the favor of God. And so I found by the working of the Spirit in my life that all I could do was look to Jesus. And I didn't come with all the flowery language of prayer. I didn't come with all my intelligent arguments. I didn't come with what we call in Britain the gift of the gap. I just said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And my testimony is this, that he remembered me. But the other question is this. Are we persevering? That's the question that Jesus gives to the believers in Ephesus. He who overcomes shall partake of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And so the question is not simply whether we have some profession of faith, but whether we are persevering unto the end. In some ways, it's harder for us to persevere than it was for the thief on the cross. But those whom God saves, he supports. Let me close with these verses from the hymn, For All the Saints Who From Their Labors Rest, verses 5 through 7. And when the strife is fear, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. Hallelujah. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors cometh rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed. Hallelujah. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on his way. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the revelation that you've given us of paradise lost, of the hidden paradise to which your people are headed, but ultimately to the final paradise, all purchased through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We pray then that you would work by your spirit in the hearts of any who are yet to turn in repentance unto God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. And for those of us claiming to be converted and thankful to be so, we pray for the grace to go on persevering and thus on the day of Jesus Christ to partake of the tree of life on a new heaven, a new earth in the paradise of God. Thank you for it in advance. And we'll give you the praise unto the ages of eternity to come. And all God's people say, 
Amen.